Welcome to the teaching ministry of Reverend JFK Mensah, a seasoned Bible teacher with over 40 years of ministry experience. He is a pastor, a church planter, a missionary, and an international conference speaker. He is passionate about making Christ-like disciples worldwide. JFK Mensah is the General Overseer of Great Commission Church International. May you be transformed as you listen to the Word of God. I want to explain that a conflict is a disagreement. And it can build up to become a quarrel, a fight. You hurt one another. You separate. When it's husband and wife, it ends up in divorce. When it's a church, it can bring a church split. People leave churches as a result of conflict. And businesses collapse because there is conflict. Family members don't talk to one another because there is conflict. So the topic of conflict resolution is critical everywhere. But particularly for the child of God, it takes a new dimension altogether. Because there is so much harm done when Christians are fighting each other with all the spiritual gifts and supernatural weapons we have. And Jesus' desire is that we should live in peace. In fact, Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called children of God. And Romans chapter 12, 16, 17, he says, as long as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Hebrews twelve fourteen says, we should strive for peace with all men and the holiness without which no man will see the Lord. And Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed in John 17, from verse 20 to 26, his prayer was that we should be one, just as he and the Father are one. So when conflicts come and Christians are involved, it's a lot of grief to heaven and to the church. And personally, The types of things I have gone through in this my 48 or so years of being a born-again Christian, I think the topic deserves attention. 
apostles. Okay. What do you think causes conflict among Christians? I can list some for you. In Acts chapter 6, from verse 1, 1 and 2, the conflict between the Grecian Christians and the Jewish Christians was like Russia. Then we have doctrinal conflicts, like Acts chapter 15, verse 2, when some people were insisting among the Christians that if you are not circumcised, you cannot be saved. Then we have personality clashes between Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15, 38 and 39. Then James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says, our own last make us quarrel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Verses 1 to 3, Paul says spiritual immaturity also makes Christians quarrel. Sometimes it is sin, and sometimes it's difference in opinion or difference in methods. You know, you want the chapel to look this way, another person wants it to look another way. Or you want to buy an organ and you don't like the, the make they bought. Sometimes the conflict is because of loyalty to different people. In First Corinthians chapter 1, from verse 10 to 12, some of the Corinthians were saying, I'm for Peter. Some said, I'm for Paul. Some said, I'm for Apollos. So, here you are. Conflicts among Christians can come from anything, just like among unbelievers. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, this tells us that as Christians, conflicts is not far from us. But then when it occurs, or when we, we spot it, that there's a possibility of a conflict. What can we do about it? So the next question we are looking at is what is conflict resolution from the biblical perspective? We believe that there are a lot of theories and um, that have been postulated in the past on how to address conflict or how to resolve conflict. But I want to look at conflict resolution from the biblical perspective. Apostle, can you please Throw more light on that for us. The biblical perspective on conflict assumes four things. Number one, that the parties are all born again Christ followers. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things are passed away. All things have become new. Number two, the biblical position on conflict resolution is that every Christian who has been forgiven 
should learn to forgive. Every Christian who has received mercy and love from God should learn to give mercy, extend grace and love to other people who offend you. Then there is the third aspect that every Christian aims to be like Jesus. Because First John 3, 2 says, when we see Jesus, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And this knowledge keeps us humble. We are more prepared as Christians to accept our faults and weaknesses than the average unbeliever. Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 to 3 that judge not so that you will not be judged. That you should remove the log from your eyes to see clearly to remove the dust or speck from your neighbor's eyes. So for the Christian, whenever there is conflict resolution, you first look into yourself to see what you are doing wrong. Where you are also falling short of Christ's standard. You don't come in with an attitude to just condemn others, but a realization that you as a Christian, you are not perfect. That those considerations must be behind everything that you are doing. And with Christianity, forgiveness and reconciliation is possible because you have been forgiven and you can gradually build trust where it was lost. Because we are all sinners coming to Jesus and growing. Amen. Amen. Since there is a biblical perspective towards conflict resolution, are there prescribed steps towards resolving conflict? Yes. Fortunately for us, Jesus did not leave us in the dark. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 24 and 25, Jesus explains that when you bring your offering to the altar and you notice that somebody, your brother has ought against you, leave your offering on the altar Go and be reconciled before you come back to offer your offering. This means with the Christian, we initiate conflict resolution because we want to live at peace. Number two, Matthew chapter 18 from verse 15 all the way to verse 18. Jesus says, if your brother offends you, go and talk over the matter with him alone. 
If there is understanding, you have gained your brother back. If there is no understanding, take two or three witnesses so that every matter will have a witness. If there is still no understanding, tell it to the church authority. And they have the final say when they sit on the case. In that case, they can even decide to treat the other person as a Gentile, an unbeliever, depending on how they evaluate the case. And the final word of Jesus on this is Luke chapter 17. In Luke chapter 17, from verse 1 to 5, Jesus informs us that offenses are bound to come. People are bound to annoy us, to offend us, to trespass against us. But woe to the person through whom these offenses come. And if your brother offends you, rebuke him and forgive him. If he offends you seven times a day and turns and comes to, to say, I repent, you shall forgive him. It is this which made the disciples say, Lord, increase our faith. So, there are steps. First from the Lord Jesus, and then the rest of the New Testament also tackles it. So, we are not left um, on our own. We are supposed to take the initiative and confront the issue. Ephesians 4.15 says, speaking the truth in love. So sometimes Christians keep quiet over issues when they need to talk. And sometimes too, they speak, but there is no love. The truth is too blunt. Uh, Proverbs 12.18 says, there is who speaks like the piercing of his sword. So, uh, the Bible is quite clear on conflict resolution. The steps are clear. You have to listen to each of the parties and speak the truth in love and judge without partiality. Romans 2.11 says, God is no respecter of persons. And Exodus chapter 23 verse 2 says, you shall not go after a multitude to do evil. Neither should you be partial on the side of the poor or the rich. So the scripture is clear. And the steps are well laid down. Since God has made provision for us in the Bible with these steps, doesn't mean that we cannot use the legal framework to address some of these issues and if we have a conflict uh, yes and no the bible says going to court before unbelievers 
should be the last resort for the church. First Corinthians chapter 6 from verse 1 to 8. So, Paul argues that we are to judge angels and we will judge the world to come. So, handling cases from the church by church members, wise people and uh, church authorities is better than taking church cases before unbeliever judges and, you know, insulting fellow Christians in front of unbelievers, it, it, it deadens and hardens them to the gospel. So it should be the last resort. However, there are extreme cases when the believer must take the case to the law courts. Number one, when unbelievers are involved, if there is a land case and an unbeliever has a lawsuit against a believer, the thing must go before unbeliever judges in the courts because the partner is an unbeliever. Two, where even though the people involved are believers, the properties involved need legal attestation. For example, if you are buying land from a fellow Christian, you can say, well, because we are all Christians, there is no need to write land papers and titles. You can't do that. You need to allow the law to take its rightful course. Marriage, for example. You cannot just marry in church and refuse to go to have the legal side because, oh, we are Christians. It doesn't matter. We understand one another. No. So that's the second kind of situation where you have to go to the law courts. But number three, where criminal issues are involved, even if you are both believers or in the church, but there is a case of suicide, there is a case of criminal abuse. What has happened is of interest to the courts. You can't say we are Christians, so we shall not go to the courts. For example, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, they went to church and both of them died and they were just taken and buried. You can't do that today. The police will be after you. So these are the exceptions. But on the whole, it should be the last resort for a Christian marriage 
or conflict between two parties in the church, church members, and then they end up in court before unbelievers is frowned upon by the New Testament. After a conflict has been resolved, why is there a need for reconciliation? Because after all, the conflict has been resolved. So why is, is there a need for us to follow it up with reconciliation? Well, conflicts involve human beings. And human beings have emotions. So the heads need time to heal. And broken trust is not repaired in, in just a day with the snap of the fingers. So, the truth is, uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10 to 12, God says, He will forgive us and our sins and iniquities he will remember no more. That is the highest level of conflict resolution and reconciliation. Because it means the offense can be easily forgiven and forgotten. But under normal circumstances, it takes time for hurts to heal and for trust to be rebuilt. And it takes two to tango. So after the conflict resolution, one party may not be in any hurry to restore the friendship to where it was formerly because trust has been broken. So these things, they happen. But if we pray about them, reconciliation can come to mean that once there is conflict resolution, people get back and can begin to live as they lived before. Thank you. Thank you very much. So does that mean that this is just a follow-up, a little follow-up on what we just discussed? Does that mean that if um, a conflict is resolved and the parties decide not to reconcile, it's it's considered a sin? Or is it okay? Let me rephrase it this way. Is it okay for the parties to decide that maybe reconciling will not be the best option? So we've resolved the conflict. That's okay. Let's stay in our corners. Uh, this question is very interesting because there is a gap between what happens in practice in the church and what the Bible prescribes. One, the Bible prescribes Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, that be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold. Two, 
First John chapter 4 verse 20 says that you don't see God. How can you claim you love God but your brother whom you see you can't love? If you can't love your brother whom you see, then it's unrealistic to say you love God. Number three, in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, the Bible says the love of God is shed or poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This means the Christian has access to supernatural love, power to love the unlovable. Power to, to, to go back to forgive and be reconciled as if nothing happened. Therefore, if there is a conflict resolution among Christians, and they pray about it with time they are able to get reconciled and return to normal and it can even strengthen the relationship more than before and cause the church to grow that's what happened in Acts chapter 6 from verse 1 to 7. When the conflict was resolved, the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And even the priests became born again and came to their faith. The church grew in strength. So, after resolving a conflict, we can have a situation like that. So, if the conflict is resolved, and all the parties involved are watched. And we notice that, no, 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 no. The bitterness is not gone. The anger is not gone. The forgiveness is not real. Then, the thing has to return to the drawing board. You have to call the case again. But if we notice that, okay, yes, the people are not back as friends, but they have forgiven one another, the anger is gone, the bitterness is not there, they are not talking about the case as grief again, then we may have to leave it for the Holy Spirit to deal with the two of them. I have three cases in mind. Number one, Paul and Barnabas. In Acts chapter 15, verses 38 and 39, Paul and Barnabas, though they were very close, they quarreled and Barnabas took John Mark and left for Cyprus. And Paul also took Silas and later Timothy and also left. They never came back to minister together 
the way the Holy Spirit called them together in Acts chapter 13, verse 2. But we can't say because of that, then they are both going to hell. I don't think it will be correct. Another group is in Philippians chapter 4, Yodia and Syntyche. Paul says their names are written in the book of life. But these women were strong-willed women who were always quarreling. They were always at each other's throats enough to deserve the attention of the apostle. And he was writing an open letter that they should be helped. So, well, I think it's a long answer, but yes, Christians quarrel, Christians separate, churches split, but at the end of the day, it's the grace of God which can sort these things out for us. Then it means that the conflict can be resolved, but maybe because the person is dangerous, the other party might have to stay away from that person. Am I right, Apostle? Yes, definitely. I do not encourage individuals taking the law into their hands and just doing what they like. My judgment, and I believe I have the Spirit of God, is that the church authority should come in. If they look into the matter and see that, no, this is an abusive relationship, this is a dangerous relationship, or a conflict which can lead to uh, fatal consequences, then they have a right as church authority to take a decision that, no, these two people to stay apart until we are satisfied that uh, there is safety. Uh, sometimes it might need bringing in the police or the law courts depending on the gravity of the situation. Uh, it's true, some people are litigants, so at the drop of a feather, they are going to court and appealing. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying the church authority should come in and put their foot down and decide which cases are threatening, which cases are dangerous, which cases after the conflict resolution to keep apart. They need to come in and do that. There have been some very bad cases. When the church did not do anything, the people took the law into their own hands. You see, a good example is this Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom in Second Samuel chapter 13. Amnon raped Tamar, who was Absalom's sister. And King David kept quiet. Their mothers too didn't do anything. 
So after two years, Absalom invited Amnon to his ship sharing and ordered his servants to kill him, even though he was his stepbrother. And after that, he fled. Now, this issue could have been settled if after Amnon raped Tamar, King David had called the case and taken some decisive steps to punish who should be punished, Amnon in this case, and vindicate Tamar. It would have made it such that Absalom's anger would subside and he won't resort to murder. But there you are. Amen. We often hear the term forgive and forget, forgive and forget. We want to find out, is this term spiritually based? And if it is, what exactly does it mean? Forgive and forget means you have been offended. But there are other considerations which weigh more than the offense against you. Therefore, when you are taking a step, acting, you must act with the full understanding that even though you remember the hurt, the offense, you have reasons bigger than your hurt in dealing with the person who hurt you. So, you behave towards the person as somebody who has not only forgiven the person, but forgotten. It doesn't mean you don't learn lessons from the head. It doesn't mean you don't see the person's character as a result of that. But you are taking other considerations to be a platform for your action. So in Matthew chapter 18, from verse 21 to 35, Jesus tells a parable. You all know it. Of a servant who owed his master 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, the master asked that he be sold with his wife, children, everything. And he fell on his face and said, I beg. Give me time, I will pay. And the master had compassion and forgave him all. When he went out, he found a fellow servant who owed him like one CD. And he held him by the throat. He said, pay me. Pay what you owe. And the guy said, I beg. Give me time. I will pay this one CD. I will pay. He said, no. And he went and threw him into prison until he will pay. And when the other servants 
saw what had happened, they went back to tell the master, do you know, this is what the man you forgave has done. And the Bible says, the master was angry. And then he called for this wicked servant. And Jesus said, anyone who doesn't forgive his neighbor from the heart, this is how your father in heaven will treat you. This means that when somebody who is a brother in Christ offends you or a sister in Christ, when we say forgive and forget, we are not saying that you should wipe out the pain and the offense and not remember it again. No, 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 no. That's not what we are saying. The Bible is saying that, yes, you have been offended. Yes, you have been hurt. But you too have been forgiven. You have been forgiven more sins by God than your brother, sister has wronged you. Therefore, forgive him from your heart and behave towards him as if you have forgotten because you have been forgiven so much that it will be unreasonable for you to be holding that against the person. This is the meaning. So forgive and forget means, yes, you have been wronged. But forbear. Forgive. But don't only forgive. Act upon the knowledge that you have been forgiven so much. You have received so much love, so much mercy, so much grace. If you compare what the person did to you to what you did to an eternal God, then you pray, Father, forgive us our trespasses just as we forgive those who trespass against us. So you act and behave from the heart as if you have forgotten and forgiven. Not that you have forgotten, but the weight of what has been done for you by God, it outweighs what the person has done so many times that you can actually look upon the person and, and just write that thing off. Amen. As I accepted in Christianity, you say that, okay, this person has hurt me. I don't want to call the person to sit down to discuss the issue. I'm forgiving the person. So can I move on? So some in such a situation, is it accepted? As a Christian, is, is that accepted? Okay. We fall into a very broad spectrum 
of human beings. There are some people we call avoiders because they want peace. They avoid conflict. So when they you offend them, they say, "Oh, you take it, take 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 it. Don't worry, it's okay, it's okay. I'm hurt, but like an F worm, I will nurse my wounds and just leave it." There are other people to, who have come into Christ. They are like Shiloh. They want their pound of flesh. And in every situation, they must win 100%. So they are so aggressive. Even though they are Christians, they will cheat you right now. And they expect always to be the winners. When they speak, theirs is always right. So, what is the Christian position? The Christian position is non-violent confrontation of the issues. If you refuse to talk, you frustrate the process of reconciliation. So Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 says, speaking the truth in love. If a Christian is offended and your way of solving it is, I won't talk. I'm forgiving the person, but I won't talk. There are some married couples who, who when you, you get them and they have to talk, one of them says, for me, I won't talk. I won't talk. And when you do that, you frustrate the, the peace process. You need to speak. You need to speak the truth in love. You must be hurt. What is hurting you? What did the other person do that hurt you? You must be hurt. Even though you should not be violent, the temptation is when you keep quiet and you don't speak during the arbitration and time you should talk, you normally gossip. You take your head and go away and because you are grieved, you talk when you should not talk, where you should not talk, and you spread other things with smoke. But like Proverbs chapter 18 from verse 15 to 19 says, when the two parties speak, is then that the judges who sit on the case can weigh the evidence and know that no, 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 no. You are wrong. Or yes, yes, yes. You are right. So if you, you don't talk and you say you are forgiven, it's more difficult to believe. And you make it more difficult for the other party to approach you for reconciliation. Now, on the other hand, 
there are some situations where you can feel that this is not a priority issue. I've forgiven this thing, or there's nothing to forgive. I'm not thinking about it. Therefore, I have nothing to say, really. And in that case, genuinely, we can take it for you if there is no aftermath. In that sense, I mean, it's, it's nothing. You come to my house and you break a glass or a cup and, and I'm like, oh, and when I see you, you are trembling that, oh, you know, and last time when I came, I broke a glass. I want to apologize. Oh, what is that? No, stop that. In reality, you're breaking that glass. It's not an issue I should talk about. Therefore, when I say I won't talk, I mean, I've forgiven you and left that thing. It's genuine. It's genuine. So these are the two sides of it. Thank you. Thank you very much. The next one we want to look at is we know very well that conflicts okay or arise among our church leaders. Some of us on this platform are also church leaders and have experienced conflicts one way or the other. So as church leaders, what can we do to ensure that we set good examples for members in terms of conflict resolution and reconciliation? Um, this is a difficult question because I have been in church conflicts many times. Some I handled poorly. Some were irreconcilable. When there is church conflict as a result of doctrine, then the reconciliation process is another ball game. If somebody in the church is teaching that Jesus was an angel, he was not the son of God, Jesus is not God, certainly handling that it is a doctrinal issue. So, then there is the issue of sin among church leaders. If a church leader, a bishop, an archbishop, a pastor, an elder, is, is involved in sin, it can be adultery, it can be financial mismanagement or something. And there is repentance. And there is a recognition that, no, what I have done is wrong. Then Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says that those who are spiritual to restore such a person and take care to themselves that they are not tempted. And they should do it in meekness. But if a 
church leader or Christian leader, elder, is involved in a sin and is not prepared to acknowledge that it's a sin and is prepared to fight like you are in leadership and you are a homosexual as a Christian leader. I don't think the reconciliation and uh, uh, conflict resolution is a matter of peacefully trying to accommodate him. Drastic action must be taken. Otherwise, it will be a COVID in the church. And people see the example and follow the example and you can't do anything because the top is doing it. Now, sometimes too, the conflict comes because there is envy, there is jealousy, there is competition, unwarranted competition. These things are shameful, but they are true. Even Jesus, the Bible says he was delivered up by the chief priests because of envy. Look at Joseph. His own brothers delivered him up because of envy. Look at Daniel in the lion's den. So, resolving such conflicts uh, is not so easy. Jesus himself said, they hated me without a cause. I think John 15, 20. So, Whenever, uh, James chapter 4 from verse 1, when, when these last and sinful tendencies come in and they are at the top, the conflict resolution process becomes very challenging. However, I agree that it's a, a shame for the church of Jesus, that our leaders, or we the leaders, find it so, so difficult to work together. Even though we encourage church members to live together. That's all I have to say. If your pastor offends you, for someone who is uh, in a higher spiritual authority than you are, can you go to the person to tell the person that this is what you did? I want us to address it. And the second one is that if you decide that after the thing has been addressed, you want to leave the church to another church so that you don't have to be seeing the person. Is that okay? Okay. Yes. When anybody, including church authorities, when they offend you, it is best to pick up the matter with them. Just that, I will advise 
that you take along with you. Somebody, your pastor, elder, church authority can respect. Otherwise, uh, there is no witness and the person can deny and like some pastors do, curse you because you have brought up the matter, etc. So it is best to get somebody who that pastor respects and take the person along. I'm saying if you have a genuine case, if you don't have a genuine case, uh, you can enter a lot of problems because you are trying to lie against the man of God and destroy his ministry. But if your case is genuine, it's true, you need to take somebody, after praying about it, of course, take somebody whom he can respect and sit on the case. And let it be addressed that way. Now, can you say you are forgiven, but you have left the church? I would say, normally, no. You, you should stay and prove that you have forgiven. But if Let's say the pastor raped you. The pastor raped you. And you took a senior person and confronted him. And you are like, okay, look, this case, I have forgiven you. But I can't stay in your church again. Because whenever I listen to you preach to me, I am not healed enough. I think each case and its merit. But on the whole, if you have forgiven the person, you ought to show it. And that means staying behind in the church. I am aware that there are a lot of hurt people and they have been hurt by pastors, ministers, church leaders. And the hurts are so deep that even if anybody sits on the case, they are like, whenever I see that guy, something in me finds it difficult to accept his sermons. And may God have mercy on us all. May God have mercy on us all. Amen. Amen. Is it necessary to establish a council or committee to handle conflicts? Definitely. Exodus chapter 18. From verse 15 to 20. Jethro advised Moses to delegate and establish 
a leadership chain so that he will only handle the difficult cases. If there is a committee which handles such cases in the church, then you can bring the pastor. This is my understanding of the question. You can bring the pastor to book there. But if the pastor himself is involved and you are expecting him to establish a committee to handle it, uh, you will wait forever. Unless I have not understood the question. If the pastor himself is involved, he will not establish a committee to look into it. But if it has to do with between church members and church members, then establishing a committee is reasonable and it's easy. How can character assassination be dealt with between leaders? How can character assassination be dealt with between leaders? Okay. Well, I know that Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but such as is good for edifying, building up. And what we call character assassination is uh, stabbing fellow leaders in the back. They have not done something and you are insisting that they did it or they have done something and you are insisting that they didn't do it as they should. And you are normally saying such a thing before people who who cannot do anything about it. And it, it is called character assassination because you are damaging the person's character in the eyes of those who respect him and all. Um, a good example is Job chapter 1 when God bragged about Job before Satan. And Satan said, does Job fear God for not? It's just because of the protection and the prosperity, the hedge you have made around him. If you remove your hand, he will curse you to your face. We say it's character assassination because God gave Satan the permission to do all that. And Job did not curse God. So it means that Satan was stabbing Job in the back in front of God. Yes. So how do we stop it among Christians? Um, I can propose a few things. Number one, transparency. I think as Christian leaders, 
we need to be very open, transparent, so that the flock and those following us can see and know us genuinely for who we are. Then, when someone is saying something about you, they are able to speak up. You know, that if you come and tell me something about my wife, I know my wife. There are a lot of cases, when I hear them, I dismiss them. I don't even ask my wife, because I know my wife not do that. But there are certain things too, when you tell me about my wife, I know my wife, I know she's capable of doing that. So I don't, I don't, uh, I don't fight on her behalf. So, let us be transparent. Number two, communication. 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 Our motives can be misinterpreted. But if there is clear communication and people can see and catch up on the updates, you see that even before the character assassination has had a place to grow, it has been shot down in the leg. And the third is a lot of uh, teaching on the subject. Um, I know that coming from the unbeliever world, some of these things are taken for granted. But Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37 says, Men shall give account on judgment day for every idle word, because by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Thank you. How does a Christian home solve conflict that pertains to child rights laws, especially in this our modern world? Well, what I do is the Bible. We do a lot of Bible discussion in the house. Vigorous Bible discussion. Because Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. So, if you build conscience into the children and your family with the Bible, they learn to judge everything with the Bible, not with the state laws. Because there are things which are sins before God but they are not crimes before the state. Smoking is a sin. Fornication is a sin before the Bible and God. 
but the state doesn't see it as criminal because the, the law, if you sleep with a lady with her consent, it's not criminal. So these things make it such that a Christian home must necessarily build conscience which is rooted on the Bible and the presence of God, the fear of God. If that is not done, it's very difficult to appeal to the state to enact laws that will favor how you will bring up your children. In fact, the separation between the states and the church in the U.S., for example, is a case in point. Whereas in the U.K., the queen is the head of the Anglican church. So they don't separate the state and the church. But in the U.S., that's it. And they don't want to use the conscience of the church to rule the country. Because there are people in the country who are not Christians. So if you are Christian, you have to do your homework. And probably a last resort will be increase the number of Christian parents who can match up to the White House with placards and say, no, we want a change. But that's, that's very difficult to, to get. Yes. The very last question for you, Apostle, is that if a married couple, they are both Christians, and the husband wants to um, have sex with the wife through the back, and the wife is not happy about it, how does the wife resolve this conflict? Um. Go to your counselors. The people who counseled you into marriage, I will advise the lady to appeal to their counselors. Some people have used the best man made of honor. Some people use the pastor who blessed their marriage. But the best place to resolve this is the the person or people who counseled you need the premarital counseling, you need to go back to them and they will bring sanity to it. But once again, let us understand that God is very interested in the marriage bed. Hebrews 13.4 says the marriage bed should not be defiled. And in Genesis chapter 38 verse 8 to 10 Er and Onan Onan was sleeping with the wife and because he didn't want to have children for the brother, he spilled the semen on the ground. And the Bible says God killed him. 
our sexual organs have been fashioned for a purpose. And because of that, they fit in a particular way. So, if you want to have sex with your wife, you have to watch anal sex is wrong, is unhealthy. Oral sex is wrong, is unhealthy. And having sex with your wife when she is in her menstrual period is wrong, is unbiblical. So Romans chapter 1 from verse 24 all the way to 27 talks about the unnatural means of men sleeping with others. Thank you very much. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful. Lord, for Jesus to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do and to counsel us to love our enemies. We believe that you are with us when we are hurt, that you feel what we feel. You empathize with us. Give us power to forgive. Give us power to be reconciled. Give us power and courage, boldness to speak the truth for conflict resolution, to take steps, initiatives, to restore broken friendships in the church and confront issues that have been left on the shelf so that the divisions, the divorces, the family breakdowns, and the church conflicts will see mature ways of being dealt with day by day. I pray for every home listening to my voice. I plead the blood of Jesus over these homes. I pray that every spirit of bitterness and forgiveness that is plaguing any home be dissolved in the blood of Jesus. Be dissolved in the blood of Jesus. That the love of God, which he has promised to pour by the Spirit into each heart, will reign in Jesus' name. Amen. Follow JFK Mensa Ministries on Facebook and YouTube and invite others to listen to his podcast. You can also access some of JFK Mensa's books and keep up with his ministry at www.jfkmensaministries.org. God bless you.